Mark chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 7. What we do here at Calvary 316 is we're led to a book of the Bible. We start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way through the book expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, until we get to the end, and then we're led to another book and we do it all over again. We are in verse 7 of chapter 3 this morning, but before we dive into the text, I want to kind of give you an outline for the ministry of Jesus that in many ways is helpful to the student of the life of Christ. When dividing Jesus' life, when dividing Jesus' ministry more specifically into maybe three simple sections, you can do so marked by the years of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had a three-year ministry that more than likely took place between the age of 30 and 33, and each year provides a different section, a different phase of ministry. Year one, scholars would refer to as the period of obscurity. Jesus came from the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a truck stop. It was off the beaten path. Not a lot good came from Nazareth. And so as Jesus begins his ministry, he really comes with no backing. He comes with no uh, great fanfare. He doesn't come from a, a family of religious leaders. He doesn't come from a family of notoriety. He doesn't, he doesn't come with an immediate platform. And so the first year of Jesus' ministry, his teaching ministry, is kind of just his fame beginning to develop, his ministry beginning to gain traction, people beginning to hear the things that Jesus was doing, the things that Jesus was saying. But for the most part, other than a few communities, a few social circles, Jesus was very uh, much unknown to the community at large. And so his first full year of ministry, we would call the period of obscurity. Now this transition into Jesus' second year, which we would aptly call the period of popularity, because the cat was out of the bag. People had heard of Jesus. His fame was beginning to spread throughout all of the region, as we're going to see this morning. So year two was his period of popularity, which transitions into year three, which we would call the period of opposition. So we have the period of obscurity transitioning into a period of popularity, transitioning into a period of opposition, each marked by these three years of Jesus's earthly ministry. Now, though in the first three chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry has already transitioned from obscurity to popularity, as we witnessed last week, Jesus has picked a fight with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, a fight which has sown the seeds of a rising opposition. As we saw last week, because of this fight Jesus has picked with the religious establishment, a plot has been officially hatched, aimed at Jesus' demise. So with that, we're told in verse 7, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. When they heard how many things that Jesus was doing, they came to him. Now, in order to keep the activity moving along, you'll notice that Mark, from time to time, will transition from one event to another by interjecting himself into the storyline as a kind of narrator. Because Mark can't include all of the details, all of the activities, all of the scenes from Jesus' life, 
he'll do this, interjecting himself as a narrator, as kind of a literary technique that will fast forward the storyline when appropriate. We see a great example of Mark interjecting himself as a narrator in the verses that we just read not giving us any specifics, but kind of giving us a broad overview, really, of a period of popularity. Now, Mark's general observations, and this is what we have in these verses, general observations, Mark provides of this second phase, the second season, the second year of Jesus' earthly ministry, this period of popularity. And there are a few things we learn from Mark's observations from these verses. First, we learn that Jesus' ministry during this period of popularity, was focused on the region of Galilee. We're told that he and his disciples, went. they withdrew, they went to the sea, the Sea of Galilee. A great multitude, Mark continues, uh, to tell us that a great multitude from Galilee followed Jesus. Now Galilee, as we've mentioned before, consisted of 15 cities, surrounding the shore, the banks of the Sea of Galilee, also known in Scripture as the Lake of Gennesaret, uh, 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 basically a pond. It wasn't much of a sea. It was seven miles in width, 14 miles in length. Not a very big body of water. Fifteen cities surrounding Galilee, each of these cities containing populations that really spilled over to one another. Scholars estimate that this region... Uh, probably consisted of anywhere between one to three million people during the ministry of Christ. Now, focusing on the region of Galilee would give Jesus a population center that would afford a natural audience. It was a good place to start a ministry. But then Mark tells us, secondly, that the crowds came to Jesus from all over. And so Jesus' ministry base was in Galilee, great place to start, lots of people, natural audience, but Mark tells us that during this, this phase of popularity, that people were coming to Jesus from all over. From the south, Mark tells us that people were coming from Judea, which was a region, and Jerusalem, the most important city of the region. Now, this was an area located at the southern basin of the Jordan River, which paralleled the Dead Sea. It was a population center of what remained of the southern kingdom of Judah. We're told that further south, Mark says that people came from Idumea and beyond the Jordan. And so you have Galilee, you descend south to Judea, Jerusalem. You go south from there to this region of Edomia beyond the Jordan. Edomia was another name that was used to describe the ancient nation of Edom which began at the southern tip of the Dead Sea and extended down through the Sinai to the northern shore of the Red Sea. You might not know this, but most of you have seen pictures or film of one of the rock fortress cities of the ancient people of Edom. One of these cities was known as Petra. If you recall one of the Indiana Jones movies, um, I believe it was the last crusade, they make their way to this rock city. Uh, Harrison Ford and Sean Connery are riding their horses in. The Nazis are on their tails. They go to, it's the rock city of Petra. These are one of the cities of the Edomites. And people were coming from that region 
all the way up beyond the Dead Sea, traveling north through the Jordan Valley up to Galilee to hear Jesus. So people from Judea and Jerusalem and then south from there, from Idumea. But then Mark tells us that people not only were coming from the south, but were coming from the north. He tells us that they were coming from Tyre and Sidon. These were two large Phoenician port cities that were situated on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. Today, this would be considered Syria. So you have people coming from Syria, coming from Jordan, to hear Jesus. We're told, and this is our third observation, we're told that the crowd that came to Jesus during this season of popularity was a great multitude. Although it's difficult to interpret what Mark might mean by a great multitude. He doesn't give us a number. He doesn't give us a figure. But some scholars estimate that the crowds that were coming to Jesus during this period, year two, were in upwards of 50,000 people. One of the stories of this period of Jesus' ministry is the feeding of the 5,000. Well, we think 5,000, that's a long way from 50,000. But if you factor in the reality that the gospel writers were only including the number of men present, not including their wives or their children, we have 5,000 men, but if you then begin to extrapolate that out, this number of 50,000 is not far off the mark, needless to say. During this season of ministry, Jesus drew a crowd. Which leads us to our fourth point. The only publicity that Jesus used was word of mouth. And this kind of sets up my first observation this morning. Jesus, his period of popularity, centering in Galilee spreading out to all of these regions, miles and miles and miles away. The only publicity that Jesus used during this period, and really all periods, was word of mouth. That was it. It wasn't as though Jesus had rented a big blimp, and that blimp was you know, working its way around the region saying, come to Galilee and hear the wonderful things that Jesus is doing. Mark tells us, he tells us, that it was, it was word of mouth. You know, even today, with our sophisticated marketing and advertisement strategies, do you realize that the best promotional tool is still word of mouth? We see Jesus' ministry here as a great example of this because Mark tells us that people came to see what Jesus was doing. Notice, read it with me, after they had, what, heard how many things that he was doing. The idea that Mark conveys here is that people would come to Jesus from all over. They would have an experience with Jesus, then they would go back home and naturally share their experiences with others, which would result in the people who heard going to see for themselves if the things that they were hearing were actually true. This is textbook word-of-mouth promotion. Now, over the last few years, I've had many well-intentioned, godly church members give me some advice on what Calvary 316 needs to do to grow and generate more exposure within the community. I've had people tell me that we need to advertise on local radio. 
when was the last time you listened to local radio? But it's a suggestion. I've been told that you need to rent a billboard off of Highway 316. That will generate some exposure. We should pay for a mass mailing campaign. Let me ask, what do you do with the junk mail in your mailbox? I've been told that we need to scatter the surrounding neighborhoods with all kinds of literature. Eh, litter. It's really what it becomes, right? That, that, that would be a good advertisement strategy for Calvary 316. I've also been told that we should engage in maybe more community outreaches, that, that, that in doing some community outreach will generate some exposure, people will come to the church. If it's not like we're uncomfortable speaking to strangers enough, let's do an outreach where we have to talk to strangers. Awkward. I've been told that we should do Facebook advertisement or that we should pay to try to generate a stronger Google presence. I kind of actually agree with that one because we do that. But don't forget, and this is the point, none of these suggestions from radio to billboards to mailing to street by street, house by house promotions, none of these things are wrong. And none of these things are, are unhelpful. But the problem I have with them is that they, they err in two ways, or, or they're lacking in two ways. First, they all cost money. And we don't have lots of that, which is a problem when it comes to advertisement. you got to have money. But secondly, and, and more importantly, all of these things are secondary, and, and they should always be secondary, to a more effective, free form of advertisement. Advertisers say that the best form of advertisement is a satisfied customer. When someone has a great personal experience, they are more inclined to pass along that experience to their friends and family, even their acquaintances. It's this spreading of a positive personal experience to another person that is so effective that print and digital media desperately try to replicate this in an arbitrary way. I get no money from Apple computers, but I'll talk anyone's ear off as to why they should buy an Apple computer. Why? Because I've had only good experiences with Apple. I drop my iPad, I shatter the screen, it's totally my fault. It's gonna cost me $300 to replace the screen. I go to Apple, I walk up to the front desk, I explain the situation, I take full responsibility, I do butter the guy up saying that I have a baby on the way and can't afford to replace it. The guy looks at me and he pulls up my account, he goes, give me a second. He comes back and gives me a brand new iPad, just gives it to me. It says, Apple believes in second chances. And I said, thank goodness. But what does that do? I'm a satisfied customer. And I walk out, and I immediately tell other people. Satisfied customers. That's the best form of advertisement. Now, 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 why am I bringing this up? Like, what's my point here? I know some of you are thinking that. Here's my point this morning. The only way that we're going to see Calvary 316 packed out on a Sunday morning 
is for the word to get out to the people that you know and the people that you come in contact with the incredible things that Jesus is doing in and through this place. And let me ask, what's the best way we can get the word out to the people that you know and the people that you come in contact with? Is the best way for us to accomplish that local radio or a billboard or a piece of mail? Or would the best way for us to get the word out of what Jesus is doing here would be for you to go and extend a personal impassioned invitation. Needless to say, a personal impassioned invitation is much more effective to reaching the people you know. Now, I know most of us hear an exhortation like this. And we understand the concept at large, intellectually. And you know, most of us will agree with the premise. I mean, duh. It's a good thing to invite people to church, right? I mean, who's going who's gonna to say that that man, Zach, is really going out there on a limb? We all will sit here and we'll hear the exhortation. We agree with it intellectually. We, we even agree that it should be a good thing. We agree with the premise. And yet, and yet, here's the deal. In the end... The reality is that the majority of the congregation sitting here this morning will not invite a single person to church this week. I know that's kind of brutal. As your pastor, it's actually depressing, but it's the truth. In one of his best-selling books, Malcolm Gladwell defines the phenomenon known by economists as the tipping point, as that magical moment when an idea, trend, or social behavior crosses a threshold, it tips, and then it spreads like wildfire. Unlike the spread of general ideas or trends or social behaviors, when it comes to our situation here this morning, there really is no great mystery concerning the catalyst that would produce the magical moment, or even how things will ultimately cross a threshold, tip, and spread like wildfire. You see, a work of God, which I think we all want to be a part of this morning, a work of God is always started, the magical moment, it's started by a moving of the Holy Spirit. I want you to know that as your pastor, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this with no hesitation, with no reservation, but with pure honesty, that I am praying and hoping and waiting for a spiritual tipping point to be sparked by the Holy Spirit inside each of you. A moment when the powerful wind of the Holy Spirit so powerfully strokes the flames of your heart that a fire for the gospel is produced a fire stoked within each of you that burns so fervently that its only natural manifestation is to spread like a wildfire to our surrounding communities. As your pastor this morning, I'm telling you that it is my prayer, my sincere prayer, that Calvary 316 will be ground zero for a new moving of God's Spirit. We might just call it a spiritual epidemic of sorts. That's what I want. According to Gladwell, economists often talk about the 80-20 principle. The 80-20 principle is the idea 
that in any given situation, roughly 80% of the work will be done by 20% of the participants. You kind of know how that works at work, right? You look around, and it's like 80% of the work is being done by 20% of the participants. And most society, 20% of the criminals commit 20% of the crimes. 20% of the motorists cause 80% of all accidents. 20% of beer drinkers drink 80% of all of the beer. When it comes to epidemics, though, this disproportionately becomes even more extreme than the 80-20 principle. When economists talk about epidemics, a tiny percentage of people do the majority of the work when it comes to spreading an idea. What this means, this means that a movement of God's spirit, a revival in the historical context, a true and lasting work of God, guess what? It doesn't require a large group of people. It doesn't require a multitude to begin. You know, Mark tells us that Jesus withdrew with whom? With his disciples to the sea. Think about it. Jesus would choose 12 men. He would train them for the work of the ministry. He would fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit. He would light a fire within their hearts that would burn so brightly that it would set the world ablaze for the gospel, that Jesus would use 12 people and change the world forever. Our numbers might not be many, but it's more than 12, which from my perspective means that we have more than enough to see an incredible work begin here, that we could be ground zero, which leads me to my second observation. And admittedly, this is probably more an observation specifically for Calvary 316. Sometimes the observations are for maybe a greater audience that's listening online right now or listening through the podcast or maybe even watching the video. But for 316, I have an observation that I think is, is important. We observe from this story that when Jesus is at work in a powerful way, in a specific place, at a specific time, and his work is making such a radical impact on those present that they return home and pass along their personal experiences, guess what? Distance no longer becomes a problem. Our story illustrates this. When they heard they came. From where? From great distances. Jesus was doing a work in Galilee. People were having an experience. They were going home to places that were a long way away, that they had to walk, that would require day travels. But when Jesus was doing something and it was making an impact and they were taking it home, people didn't care about the distance. You know, I've found that how far I'm willing to go is proportionately connected to how great I perceive 
to be the thing I'm pursuing. Let me give you an illustration of this. If Andy, it's a good friend of mine, good friend I trust when it comes to food particularly, but if Andy recommends that there's a restaurant, Zach, you've got to go try this place out. You and Jess, you, you've got to go. I mean, the food was fantastic. The atmosphere was awesome. I mean, if Andy's description of the food and the atmosphere, if it whets my appetite and it piques my curiosity, do you know I'll drive almost anywhere to fill my belly with the best food I can find? Like, I mean, I mean, really, if Andy tells me that there's a restaurant and he explains how awesome it is and I pull it up on Google and it's downtown and it's like an hour away from me, gas, I don't even care. I mean, really, at that point, my time doesn't become much consideration. I'll even spend money for the experience because I love food, like good food, right? Now, I might have to plan my schedule accordingly, but I'll do it. I'll make the sacrifice. If I perceive the experience to be great, I'll go the extra mile to try it out. Now, though Calvary 316 has a heart, and I say this because it's true, though we have a heart for our surrounding immediate community, if I were to draw a 10-mile circle around Calvary 316. We have a heart for that community. It's true. It's undeniable. But it's also a simple truth that we presently feature members who live all over the place. It's amazing. It really is. Think about it. The diversity of the people who come here on a Sunday morning, who gather to worship and study God's word here on a Sunday morning, they come from all over the place. Our worship leader and his wife, they drive here on Sunday morning from downtown Atlanta. Your pastor lives in Snellville. We have members who drive from Grayson, Loganville, and Monroe. We have people who make the journey from Swanee, Auburn, Winder, Bold Springs, and Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Georgia, not the actual Bethlehem. We even have members, and this is crazy to me, it's awesome, that we have members who come here from as far out as Athens, and that's like another state. It really is. It's awesome. It's incredible. But I know, and here's my point, I know that there is a general sentiment that your proximity makes inviting people to your church a frivolous exercise. We conclude, and I think falsely, that Calvary 316 is simply too far for me to invite my friends or my neighbors or my buddies at work. That the proximity of your church is too far from where you live to make an invitation relevant. But let me challenge you. Let me challenge you in this way. First, it's clear that you have found, that you, speaking of you, that you have found something at Calvary 316 worthy of making the drive for. So, so you have found something here worthy of making the drive for. Who's to say that there aren't other people in your area who would also be willing to do the same thing? If your experience at Calvary 316 whets an appetite for God's word and piques a curiosity, 
If what God is doing here is perceived to be great by the people you communicate to, then guess what? They'll drive an extra mile to see if what you've communicated is right. Secondly, don't allow Satan to use proximity as an excuse. Understand, Satan will look for any reason that he can dissuade you from reaching the lost, from reaching the people around you with the gospel. Your church is too far, so you should be excused. But my third point, and I think it's the most powerful point, and it's the thought that came to me, that I felt like God, I mean, it was one of those moments where you're standing on holy ground in my study, and I just had to like, take a step back from my computer and think, wow, I hadn't considered it like that. Consider the diversity of our group this morning, maybe in a different context. What if God has brought together a group of people from Atlanta to Athens and all areas in between for this purpose, that God desires to use Calvary 316 to make an impact, not just on one community, but that God wants to use our church to impact a region. Could it be that God wants to use Calvary 316, which is why he's gathered us who live in such a wide diversity of regions, that God wants to use our church as a beacon that shines a light that can be seen from Peachtree Street in Atlanta to Broad Street in Athens, that God's purpose for this church is not just to reach this zip code, but to reach a region. That's a work I want to be a part of. That's a work I'm excited about. That's a work I believe he's brought the nucleus for, which excites me to see what's next. Well, verse 9. So Jesus told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But Jesus sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Now, I only have one observation from this passage, and it's kind of a, a, a secondary observation of sorts, that ministry, ministry requires relational balance. Now, in this passage, Mark is summarizing this incredible ministry that's occurring during the season of popularity. But then he tells us something that's interesting about Jesus' ministry. That Jesus told them that this was a command. He commanded his disciples that they should keep a small boat ready for him so he wouldn't be crushed by the very people he was there to minister to. Apparently, there were times when there were so many people pressing about Jesus that it became detrimental, if not downright dangerous, for Jesus to remain on the shore, that in some ways he needed an escape strategy. Now, whether it be you're ministering to a family in need down the street, or maybe you're ministering to the guy at work whose marriage is on the rocks, possibly the teenage misfit you're trying to mentor, maybe it's a friend that you're trying to encourage through family struggles, whatever the ministry is or whatever the ministry isn't, Jesus here in this passage demonstrates an important principle that we would be wise to incorporate into our own. 
Jesus knew that there were times when it was appropriate, when it was healthy, when it was necessary to create a little distance between himself and the people he was ministering to. Sometimes it's important to create a little space, and that's healthy. Well, it's at least something we should consider. And Jesus, verse 13, went up on the mountain, and he called to himself those he himself wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Sons of Thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, which actually should be, should be better translated zealot, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And we're told that they went into a house. Now, our scene of activity, it's very simple. Jesus has created for himself some alone time some time where he could get away from the multitude. And to do this, Jesus grabs his North Face gear, his double nest hammock. I have no idea what these things are. I just looked them up on the REI website so I could relate to Chad. Regardless, Jesus went for a hike. I don't do hiking. I don't like walking. I like sitting and watching college football. But this is what Jesus does. He goes for a hike. Luke tells us that he spends the whole night, Chad's laughing at me. Luke tells us that he goes for this hike in the night, spends all night in prayer. Jesus is at a critical point in his ministry. The period of popularity is about to come to an end. He's about to enter this third phase of ministry, a period of opposition. Because Jesus had offended the traditions of the religious leadership, they had joined with the Herodians. They had plotted for Jesus' destruction. Sure, there was a great multitude that followed Christ, but they were becoming uninterested in spiritual things. In many ways, the crowd, the mob that flocked out, flocked out for the wrong motivations. They came to be wowed by Jesus. As consumers, they came to Christ, not as worshipers. This mob, they were fickle. And they could quickly transition against Jesus. They could turn against Jesus if Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations, which we all know ultimately took place. It's interesting to think that with these dynamics at play, Jesus would decide it was time to appoint 12 disciples from his multitude of followers. Two questions come to mind. First, why spend all night in prayer? Now, as crazy as it would seem, it would be with these men that Jesus would choose, that he would start the church with. One commentator observed that this was one of the most important decisions that Jesus would ever have to make in ministry. Prayer was crucial. Now, if prayer is crucial for important decisions that Jesus has to make, you know, prayer should maybe be important for us if we face important critical decisions that might come our way. My second question, though, the second question that comes to mind is, why would Jesus only appoint 12 men? He has a multitude that follows. Earlier on, Jesus sends out 70, two by two, to go out and do ministry. 
He had a big group that he could pick from of able-minded men. So why 12? Well, these men, as mentioned, would form the nucleus, the foundation of the church, which would be a new chosen people. As Israel had 12 tribes, so Jesus would choose 12 disciples. Now, my first observation is that Jesus in this passage does something important for us. Jesus defines the job of a disciple. First, a disciple should walk with Jesus. Mark says that he appointed 12 for what purpose? That they might be with him. Now, though in the Greek, the word used for disciple does mean student. In the context of the religious culture of Jesus' day, the implications of this Greek word are a little deeper than just student. A better translation uh, from the Greek to the English might be the word apprentice. A disciple's job was more than just learning what a rabbi believed or how a rabbi thought. This could have been accomplished through a classroom or a school. A job of a disciple was instead to learn not just what a rabbi believed or what a rabbi thought, but the job of a disciple was to learn how a rabbi lived. And the best way to accomplish this was to live with the rabbi, to walk with the rabbi. Jesus had a multitude of people who followed him that would continue to follow him. But he hand-selected these 12 men to be his apprentices, to be his disciples. They were not going to just learn what Jesus knew, but they would receive one-on-one personal training. They needed to learn not only what Jesus believed, but they needed to observe how Jesus lived and why. Well, this leads to our second, our second point. A disciple, in addition to walking with Jesus, a disciple should represent Jesus. Mark continues that he appointed 12 that he might send them out. And then he gives this list of things that they would do, preaching, casting out demons. Basically, he sends them out to do the things that he has been doing. A disciple was to live with the master. So by proximity to the master, he could learn what the master might do or what the master might say or how the master might act or react to any given situation. The idea was for a disciple to become so familiar and in sync with his master that he could represent his master in the absence of the master. The purpose of training these 12 men was very simple. Jesus knew he would be leaving. And so he trains them to go out and to represent him. In essence, their job, the job of a disciple was to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. In much the same way, our job, our call to discipleship should begin with a relationship with the master. Folks, you should know more than just what Jesus knows or what Jesus believes, but you should know how Jesus is, his personality, his character. You should become in sync with the master You should walk with Jesus so you can effectively represent Jesus to the lost world around you. My second observation is that Jesus defines the criteria for discipleship. He gives us the job description, and then he gives us the criteria. 
If you were going to choose 12 men to start a church with, ultimately ask you to represent him in his absence, I think we can agree that the 12 men Jesus chose would probably have not made your list. Don't forget, Jesus had spent time with them. Jesus had not only read over their application, but he had interviewed them. For at this point, probably more than a year and a half, Jesus had spent time with these men. He knew them, and then he even prayed. He prayed for them. Jesus chose them. He chose Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, a man who was impulsive, who was arrogant, who was proud. Peter couldn't figure out when to shut up. Peter would deny Jesus in Jesus' most crucial period of need three different times following his arrest. And then you have James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who Jesus gave the nickname Sons of Thunder. These men were ambitious to a fault, and it seems by their nickname they were a little hot-headed. There's a story later on where Jesus would enter, uh, try to enter a Samaritan town. He would be denied access. They would have to go around, and James and John come to Jesus with a wonderful idea. Jesus, let's firebomb the town. Let's just kill everybody. They were impulsive. They were hot-headed. I mean, really, great guys to have on your team. Nothing like level-headed men. And there was Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus. We know so much about these men. The only thing we actually know is that when Jesus was also in his time of need during the arrest in Gethsemane, they were of such high character that they all stood by Jesus' side. Nope. These men, really, the only thing we know is they ran as well. Thomas. Thomas is known for one thing, doubting. I mean, how for the, for the rest of time you would like to have the nickname Thomas the Doubter? I, I would want to be known as like Zach the, the, the Zealous or Zach the Strong, but Thomas the Doubter. You doubted. Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. We've talked about him. He was a traitor. He had sold out the Jews for the Romans. And we find Simon, the zealot. The word zealot is actually the name Daggerman. He was Simon the Daggerman. This was a group of rebels, of revolutionaries within Israel at the time that were known for taking daggers and in the midst of crowds, sneaking up behind Roman soldiers and working their dagger right between the seams so that they could cut them, so that they could stab them. Simon the dagger man, who's a zealot wanting to fight for the freedom of Israel, is on the same team with Matthew the traitor. Not the group you compile. And then you got Judas. Oh, you have Judas who, betray who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Here's the big question. If Jesus calls these men and women to be his disciples, and he establishes a, pres a precedent in doing so, A, under what criteria does he make his selections, and B, am I a worthy candidate? Jesus' criteria, you should understand, was not based on who these men were without Jesus, but rather who he could make them into. All of these misfits, with, I guess, the exception of Judas, would be used by God in incredible ways. But they would be used by God, check it out, after spending time walking with Jesus, after being empowered by the filling of the Holy Spirit, were they actually effective in representing Jesus to the world around them. 
if these men could be worthy candidates of discipleship, then we all are. Which leads me back to Judas. You ever thought, why would Jesus choose Judas? I mean, first, Jesus didn't choose Judas because Jesus didn't know how Judas would turn out. Jesus even tells his disciples that when he chose them, he knew upon choosing them that one of them was a devil. It was no surprise to Jesus that Judas ultimately betrayed him. Jesus spent all night in prayer and hand-selected Judas knowing the intentions of his heart. So why would Jesus do this? Personally, I believe that Jesus included Judas and his story to illustrate a profound truth that we're going to close with this morning. Here's the truth. No person can destroy God's plan for your life. I think Judas illustrates this. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty that you can do to destroy certain aspects of God's plan for your life. You can go out and make some stupid decisions, and it will have a profound influence. That's a truth. But what do we find here? We find here in Jesus choosing Judas, knowing Judas would betray him. Did Judas really have any great effect over God's will for Jesus' life? No, not at all. Jesus' destiny way before Judas was the cross. You see, understand that no man has such a profound influence over your destiny as to be able to derail God's will for you. And this should come as great encouragement. There are times that we find ourselves at the mercy of others. We get hurt. We get stabbed in the back. We get taken advantage of. We feel mistreated or betrayed. And in those moments, we get that thought that maybe as the victim, because this has happened to me, that that person not only maybe has taken away my innocence, but has taken away what God could really ever do. Here's the deal, folks. Just as Judas, as evil and malicious as he was, could not destroy God's will for Jesus' life, no man has the power to destroy God's sovereign will for you. That God is totally in control. A man once asked a theologian, why did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot to be his disciple? Theologian, he sat there and he pondered for a moment. He considered. And this was the reply that he had to the man. He says, you know, why Jesus chose Judas Iscariot, I, I don't really know. But I have a harder question that's more difficult for me to find an answer for. And that's why Jesus would choose me. You know, guys, you look at the dirty dozen, and they were, they were dirty. They were not the most upstanding people. They were betrayers and traitors and deniers and doubters. But God chose them. Not for who they were without him, but for who they could be with him and what he could do through them to impact the world around them. 
this morning's message, tying it all together. Do you believe that God is doing something here this morning? Do you believe that God is doing something at Calvary 316 that is worthy of excitement? That is making an impact? That you're coming and you're hearing God's word taught and that's making a difference in your heart? That you're encountering the risen Lord? That he's making a difference, making a change, making an influence? A disciple Disciples to have his heart synced with the master, but a disciple is then a person who goes and represents the master. Is what God's doing here, is it worthy of you bringing a friend? Is it worthy of you bringing someone who doesn't know Jesus? Do you talk about your church in such a way Man, what God's doing, it's so neat. What God's doing in my heart, so powerful that people, are, that people ask you, hey, what church do you go to again? Where is that? That's like 30 minutes away. But good grief, I'll drive 45 minutes for good food. I guess I should come. Guys, it all starts with you connecting to Jesus, but then it continues with you going out those doors and effectively representing him beyond inviting people to church, make a difference. Share your faith. Share your faith. Calvary 316, we teach the whole Bible to see Jesus transform us into healthy and whole people, worthy disciples. But then we have a mission, and that's to go out and impact the world. And I believe with all of my heart, with all of my heart and soul, that it's not just for this community. But it's a work that we'll look back 10, 15 years from now and say, wow, we couldn't have even imagined. And so, Father, Lord, it's with that that we ask right now for a fresh wind of your spirit to stoke the flames of our hearts with a passion. that you would set a blaze within us that's uncontrollable. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name.